Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. We have a great interactive class for you this evening, tapping into the Earth's energy grid, tapping into the power. We've talked a bit about Earth energy grid before, been almost a year since the last time we covered it. You guys had a lot of questions for me back then, so I will definitely uh, reference everybody back to uh, last year's class for those listening to the, uh, the the podcast and syndicated shows uh, later on. Uh, you can you know find that uh, archived podcast from last year as well. But also for those listening to the podcast version of this later and, uh, and on the syndicated shows, want to let you know you can actually watch this live every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, the ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Uh, it's part of the membership site. Get a 30-day free trial, and then after that, it's $9.99 a month. But you get a ton of content. So, of course, you get the weekly live interactive class with all the uh, video clips and slide presentation, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but you also get sneak peek of behind-the-scenes videos, monthly Q&As, exclusive articles, insider travel vlogs like from Egypt, Ireland, American Southwest, lots of great, great content out there. ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Dot com. All right, well, we got those things out of the way. I see uh, Nicole Nimoy is in the house, as well as Katie McVeigh. Uh, Amy Van Tassel is here with us as well tonight. Great to see you all down there. All right, so the class question for tonight, we bring this up here, was, for what purpose do you think the ancients used the power of the Earth's energy? A couple of you did respond to this. So Jennifer LeBay said, enlightenment and tapping into natural law. Sarah Yusuf said, healing and drawing forth life's abundances. Uh, both which I would say they, they did use that for. Uh, there's a lot of things that we speculate what they were doing. And uh, all of those, I would say, yes, and more so. And we're going to get into some of those different things this evening. But uh, we're not going as far back into ancient history just yet, we're actually going to start a little bit more recently, a little bit more than 100 years ago, and we're actually going to start with Nikola Tesla. Yes, uh, because he seemed to understand these principles of tapping into the Earth's energy, and this was actually something that he was trying to do. And, you know, I mean, really, his, his life is a sad one. Brilliant genius. He actually did a ton for us that we are very, very thankful us, thankful for. Of course, alternating current for us and light bulbs. A lot of other different uh, things that he patented along the way. And many ideas and concepts that you know, totally blew our mind back in the day. You know, when he would talk about, you know, one day we would have uh, all the knowledge of the world that we could put in our pocket. And today we have a cell phone that through it, I can you know, Google anything. Of course, you know, take what you find on the internet with a bit of a grain of salt because you can find some, of course, incorrect information out there, but you can find a lot of accurate information out there too. But essentially, the uh, the knowledge of the world at our, at our fingertips now. So uh, Tesla did understand that there was a uh, an energy to the earth and he was trying to tap into this. So when he first tried these experiments, it was actually in Colorado Springs. Everybody uh, you know, talks about the Wardenclyffe Tower, which we are going to get into a little bit here. But he actually started his uh, these type of experiments at Colorado Springs. It was only there for a year, 1899. Uh, they, they may have gotten a little bit tired of him because you know he was um, causing the power to go out in town and um, you know sparks were flying. Horses were oh, horse. <laughs> horses were getting uh, shocked on their uh, on their horseshoes, you know, weird little things like that. Because he was experimenting up there, and so this was his his facility, the Tesla Experimental Station, Colorado Springs. So the lab possessed the largest Tesla coil ever built, uh, almost fifty feet in diameter, which was basically the preliminary version of the magnifying transmitter that he planned to install in the Wardenclyffe Tower. This is also the facility where he claimed he had received signals from space. And they also photographed the very cool Tesla sitting there 
reading and you have the sparks flying. Now that wasn't the normal operation of the facility. Uh, they generated this to basically take a cool photo, uh, but he was totally safe in this environment too. And it, it does really make for a cool uh, photo for sure. This is also where you have the legend of him plugging bulbs into the ground and they would turn on from wireless energy. And he did do this actually uh, with an induction source some 60 feet away. So this is where he was doing his experiments with uh, wireless energy. So it, this is essentially what it looked like. You got you know, three little bulbs that are, are stuck in the ground and it, it did work. And you know this is Hollywood. <laughs> A photo from the prestige where you have rows and rows of all these, you know, massively illuminated light bulbs. Yeah, it wasn't quite like that. It was these three little bulbs. But this is basically where he got uh, got the start for this idea that he ended up putting into the Wardenclyffe Tower, which is what everybody uh, recognizes when we start talking about Nikola Tesla. And he was trying to harness the, the Earth's power here. So what this was supposed to do, this was built in 1901, New York. It was supposed to be a global wireless communication system. Uh, the tower, this particular tower, was supposed to be a prototype for a system, an entire system that could broadcast music, news, stock market reports, secured military communications, even facsimile images around the world using the Earth as a conductor itself. So this here is an illustration of, uh, of the tower tapping into the ground. There's supposed to be uh, a variety of different tunnels around there that were uh, in that were part of the function of the uh, of the tower. And they have done some uh, ground penetrating radar and they have uh, confirmed that there are tunnels there under the ground. So those legends uh, apparently are true. They haven't, you know, dug under there. That would almost kind of be cool to do almost a Curse of Oak Island thing where they, you know, dig, you know, hole down to, you know, where the Wardenclyffe Tower was and see what was really under there. But they have done that ground penetrating radar. Uh, so continuing on, uh, Tesla's dream was to not only revolutionize, tele revolutionize telecommunications by creating this system for relaying information wirelessly, but also to create a viable method for transferring power currents around the globe by capturing the Earth's natural energy. Again, tapping into that Earth energy for us to be able to use. Modern concept, or I'm sorry, modern technology, ancient concept. We'll get into the ancient part here in a little bit. But this is Tesla's words that were printed in Collier's Weekly, 1901. What he said was, using the earth itself as the medium for conducting the currents, thus dispensing with wires and all other artificial conductors, a machine which, to explain its operation in plain language, resembled a pump in its action, drawing electricity from the earth and driving it back into the same at an enormous rate thus creating ripples or disturbances which, spreading through the earth as through a wire, could be detected at great distances by carefully attuned receiving circuits. In this manner, I was able to transmit to a distance not only feeble effects for the purposes of signaling, but considerable amounts of energy. That, that, was, his, that was his big dream, to be able to not only send messages uh, and be able to broadcast wirelessly, which, you know, we have with radio, but this was supposed to be a massive global type scale, but he also wanted to send the electricity wirelessly. He ran into some financial problems, of course. Um, basically, he felt pressure and competition uh, with Marconi. Marconi was making great strides with the radio. Uh, he was starting to send radio transmissions a lot further, and there were even there was even talk that Marconi was talking about uh, having his own Tesla coil. Tesla had uh, read that somewhere, basically uh, became upset, and this drove him to increase the scope of the project. He wanted to make an even bigger tower, up to like six hundred feet, and you know the. the 
uh, you know, the estimates came in like you, you know, this will cost like half a million dollars. And it was like 460 some odd thousand dollars to be able to build something. That, and you think that that's in those days dollars uh, today, that would be millions upon millions. And people just weren't going to throw that kind of money at something that was experimental. Uh, even though Tesla was saying, well, you know, we can communicate with somebody in Scotland. You know, JP Morgan uh, pulled out, you know, because one of uh, Tesla's ideas was that this would essentially be free energy for people. We're going to build these things and then people can tap into the energy for free. Well, JP Morgan's a financier. He wants to make money on the deal. He's pulling out and everybody was excited about what Marconi was doing. Marconi's transmitting and having and making this progress. And it was like Tesla's ideas were way too big. And so the project eventually just failed. Apparently in 1903, there were some sparks that people witnessed flying out of the tower, lit up the sky, and nobody really saw the thing function again. We don't know what happened, but by the mid uh, 19 teens, like around 1915, the whole site was eventually abandoned. He was having to, uh, it was getting foreclosed upon. And um, it was really, really sad what ended up happening to that. So again, Tesla was trying to tap into something that the ancients had known about for thousands of years using the energy and the power of the earth. And we see that in the way that he actually built this tower, where he's actually tapping into that and harnessing that energy. We've talked about this a lot of times when we've gotten into like our ancient stone circles, the pyramids, uh, all of that sort of thing, which is what we are going to get into this evening. We're going to start with, well, where were we just at? Drombeg Stone Circle. And uh, this was a really, really interesting place. We did uh, in Ireland. We did both Drombeg and Grange. Grange is actually the largest stone circle in Ireland. And it's actually a, a hinge, which is actually a little bit different than, uh, than Drombeg. Drombeg is a just a stone circle where uh, Grange has the earthwork embankment also built into it. Got it. kind of the same reactions like using dowsing rods in the middle where the dowsing rods would spin and then point outwards toward the stones. Great. What was different, though, with Drombeg was standing right in the middle of it. And it's probably because the, the stones were a little closer in proximity was you could hear the resonance of the location just talking, standing in the middle. Um, it was really, really fascinating. So you think about uh, back in ancient times when these stones were bigger, and there were more of them. Uh, they, they believe there were 17. There's only 13 now. So four stones are missing. Stones would have been bigger back then. And they would be doing loud chanting and things like that. They know it was used for ceremonial work. They just don't know what exactly those ceremonies were. But again, we're talking you know, healing, enlightenment, entering altered states of consciousness, that sort of thing. And sound and vibration was always a big part of that in the ancient world. And it's just, it's magnificent. You, ha you have to go there and stand in the middle and you'll know what I'm talking about. Let me go ahead and play a clip. We played this a, a few weeks ago when we did the Ireland tour recap, but for you know, purposes of this conversation, uh, it's relevant. Actually, the, they call them the portal stones. So on the winter solstice at sunset, look right through here you see the setting sun so we're originally they believe uh originally 17 stones there's only 13 now you can kind of hear when you step into the middle of the circle you can kind of hear a bit of an echo which is interesting and that's you know the resonance off the stone as you're uh projecting but that would kind of enhance okay, so that okay so that's the stone circle and as i that done explained to everybody with draw bag. Uh, the axial circle originally they believe 17 stones, only 13 now. You got the two portal stones at the front, come up to the axial stone, uh, which a lot of circles in Ireland are axial. So that's to the southwest. And during the winter solstice, you look through the two portal stones to the axial stone, and then you see the, uh, the setting sun. So it is a ritual site. We have found uh, remnants of rituals from the past here. So they just don't know exactly what they did during the original. So I can't guess. They don't exactly know what they were for. And I guess of that too. 
Uh, but you definitely feel an energy inside. Uh, you have these large stones that have uh, high quartz content. When you stand in the middle, you can hear an echo. Um, so it's very, very interesting. That's Drombeg, and I know others felt energy and felt different things at these uh, particular locations. So if uh, I know Jin LeBay is down there, if if Anne is down there, or Vicky Breeze, or um, or Tammy are down there, you could chime in with what you actually felt at these locations, Drombeg and Grange. Um, I know, Jen, when you were doing a uh, your transcendental meditation, you were feeling somebody next to you. Uh, and it talked about that was at yeah, that was at Grange and also at Grange and was feeling, uh, you know, hot spots. And I guess people, a lot of people were feeling these different, like warm areas around Grange was, which was interesting. And then drawn several others felt, uh, a number of different things around that area too, or feeling the energy. I know we had some people that were just soaking it all in and, and just standing right there and, and kind of harnessing it, which, you think this is you know similar to what the ancients were doing back then and they had you know their specific rituals uh to be able to tap into that so of course when we're talking stone circles when everybody's uh certainly familiar with stonehenge uh this is you know kind of the most famous and what's interesting when we talk about uh many of these stone circles is as we continue to do research, we, we get better technology, bigger technology. We're discovering that they're actually a newer part of a much larger complex. I don't have the, the photo up here, but even like Gobekli Tepe out in Turkey, you know, they've only uncovered a very, very small fraction you know, of that site, all of these different circles. And there's more there that, that's even older. So, okay, Stonehenge, part of a much larger complex. It's interesting when we talk about the energy of, of this location. I have, you know, friends that have gone there that have talked about feeling the energy. I've not yet been to Stonehenge myself. Um, and, and yeah, there's Jen talking about it was definitely a deep meditation at Grange. But with uh, Stonehenge, there's a really interesting urban legend, whether it's true or not. We don't know. It's supposedly witnessed by a, a police officer, which is where the uh, which is where the story came from. But in 1971, when you used to be able to just walk right into the place, there were what they call the Stonehenge hippies that decided to go camping there one night. Yeah, you you can't you can't do that anymore. You can't go camping at at Stonehenge. It, they barely let you near it these days, which is really disappointing. Um, but in any case. These uh, group of young adults go up to the uh, go up into Stonehenge and they're camping there um, and they're having a good time. A police officer walking by had seen them up there, but all of a sudden he sees this blue light in the middle of the monument and then poof, they're gone. Highly technical term, poof. All that's left are their backpacks. So this is where people talk about was Stonehenge once some sort of a stargate or uh, if not a stargate, at least a portal that perhaps the technology that was built into this location, the, uh, the construction of the stones, et cetera, et cetera, was this one of the functions of Stonehenge that, okay, healing purposes, rituals, entering altered states of consciousness, that sort of thing, but also to access other dimensions, times, somewhere else in space, a portal to somewhere else. Possibly, that's one of the things that we speculate about many of these sites of power that are on top of these energy nodes. And we're going to get into the, uh, the terminology here in just a moment of the lines and the nodes and, and all of that. Tom McNicholas had a question down here, though, that I saw. Um, he asked, what is the difference between Earth's energy and solar energy? Kind of right in your question there, my friend. Uh, the Earth's energy is basically energy that's coming up out of the Earth's core. It has a, uh, a molten iron core 
the earth is spinning so therefore the the uh, molten iron is also spinning which creates magnetism and energy uh, the solar energy comes from the sun so that's the solar wind coming from the sun and hitting the earth which our earth energy the uh, protective shield that is generated by our molten core uh, helps protect us from that solar wind that's uh, bouncing off of of the planet so they um, very much related but but two different things so uh, Katie McVeigh is telling us that she was recently at Stonehenge and had a similar experience, deep meditative and lots of energy. Thank you, Katie, for uh, for letting us know that. And that's that's really what I hear of with Stonehenge, that you can really feel the energy is very, very palpable. And uh, <laughs> Connie is saying uh, that the Stonehenge hippies went to go see Jamie in 1793 Scotland. There you go. <laughs> awesome. And Sarah says, most of these hinges seem rather isolated compared to locations of other human settlements. Is there a reason for that? Is human activity considered a hindrance to the flow of energy? What's interesting is that you know, some of them are kind of out there, but not necessarily so much back at that time. So there at Drombeg, there's actually the, um, the ruins of two stone huts. And actually up the hill is a house and down the hill is a farm. So Drombeg actually has some civilization around it. Now, the dating of those huts appears to be after the construction of the hinge, but somebody decided, or after the construction of the stone circle, sorry, Grange was a hinge. Um, but still, they decided to, you know, to build a little bit there. And then around Grange, there's, there's some different farms, but they do seem to be a little bit more, you know, out in the country. And given the time that these were built this was before civilization became very large in fact one of the things that blows people's minds or at least the academia world about gobekli tepe is that civilization was not supposed to have existed yet every everybody was supposed to be hunter gatherers they weren't supposed to be building massive things like this it's one of the uh one of the arguments that they made against John Anthony West and Robert Schock about their redating of the Sphinx, they kept throwing out there, well, you know, people weren't building things like this then. Aha. Uh -huh. And then you find go back to and it's like, oh, okay, they actually were. Uh, but it, it seems to be more of a mass communal type of area where you would bring in a lot of people to do these different ceremonies. And that's not going to work out so well in the, in the middle of town. If you have a town, it would be better uh, you know, on the on the countryside somewhere, but again, they're they're utilizing places that have lots of energy to it. So, um, so they may do something like, okay, build it. You know, the uh, the structure out there you know, where all of that uh, that energy is, and then back away a little bit. That's where we'll set up our our tents and huts and and all that. So we don't exactly know what was in their minds when they built these things. Again. Lot of lot of speculation as to how and why they did these things. So, all right. So that brings us to the pyramids, pyramidal structures around the world. We're mostly going to just talk about um, the pyramids in, in Egypt, uh, since, of course, I'm most familiar with those, having actually been inside them. But uh, a lot of these same principles. Last time we did this uh, talk, we, we talked about uh, Teotihuacan and uh, some of the pyramids there in uh, Mexico and South America. And we'll revisit those uh, another time too. We're mostly going to be talking about uh, Egypt right now. So again, uh, you know, what are they harnessing? What are they tapping into? This is supposed to be in one of the uh, extreme power centers uh, of the world. Now, of course, you have uh, Christopher Dunn with his Giza power plant theory, where the... Uh, where the pyramid was actually a machine for generating power for the surrounding community. So this, uh, you know, this image here where it shows the uh, king's chamber as a resonant quartzite chamber producing microwave power. Uh, you have the uh, queen's chamber as a reaction chamber and in all of these different uh, elements of what he's calling the Giza power plant. I'm gonna go ahead and play a clip 
when we did the preview for the Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour, I did play this then. Again, it's relevant to the conversation that we're having right now when it comes to uh, the power. So let's go ahead and uh, and cover this once again. Those that are listening to the podcast later, this might be a little uh, new for you. But this is right within the Great Pyramid and around it. Okay, we are here at the Great Pyramid, about to go inside. <laughs> In the subterranean chamber of the Great Pyramid. We have to thank Mohammed for this. Thank you, Mohammed. <laughs> really appreciate this opportunity to be in the subterranean chamber. Yeah, very welcome. This is a, a rare opportunity. Not everybody can have this uh, opportunity. I'll probably have read an announcement as I wait for me to go up to the king's chamber. We'll just look at the queen's chamber here. I mean, back in there, I'll put the photos up. It's just hard to see with the video. I like, not bring a flashlight. Me being a bad investigator. Looks like heat damage. You can see kind of like rivulets. It's almost like molten, but then it's all blackened all the way up, especially back there where you have all these little rivulets. We're in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid. This is an eight-row granite box that is extremely interesting. Not sarcophagus. And what is the purpose of this thing? What discovery did you make today? Well, the discovery that we made today, we have the three holes on the back side, evenly spaced apart. They're not on the front side. This is completely flat here on the back side while we have this lift. It goes all the way around here. I don't know why it was built like that, of course, but very interesting that this is flat like that and does not have a lift like the other side. It basically suggests that there was no lift that was placed straight down. As I said, we can prove many functions to the pyramid. So when we say power plant, that is not the only function. When we say uh, portal, that is also not the only function. When we say healing center, many of the functions of the pyramid. As if we are talking about 1,000 projects in one building. This is a very strange block. It's a block of eight sides. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Why they design a block with eight sides, like a puzzle shape, and we surrounded by six blocks. And why we don't see two blocks are the same. We don't have any twin blocks here. Every block is different design from the other. Why they made this? They say this is interlocking design. Okay, good. Why? They say to resist the vibrations from earthquakes. Do we have earthquakes in Egypt? No. In the last 2000 years, we have only three earthquakes. But the word vibrations is perfect, but not from earthquakes. From what? Machine. From the machine. Yeah, so there's Mohammed getting uh, kind of deep into even around the pyramid, the way things were constructed to be able to deal with the energy that is being produced if this thing really was a machine. And although I don't know if it was specifically used as a power plant, and I, I do like Tom's comment here, that many would freak out if one night they see the pyramids glowing in the dark. And it was white limestone casing blocks. So in many ways, it very well could have been glowing at night to some degree. Uh, it you know, Just even with the sun shining on the thing, it's going to be bright. So, but a lot of people believe that, you know, the way that it was harnessing the energy was to uplift the area. Uh, you know, whether it was producing actual electric power is debatable, but in harnessing that energy for the land. Now, the Egyptian people were very much into... Um, well, for one, they were very much into death. I mean, it's kind of, it sounds morbid to talk about, but um, they were always preparing for the afterlife. Their, their life was to prepare for the afterlife, but they also needed to live while they were there on earth too. And the Nile River was very, very important important to them. So Egypt, Egypt is actually a Greek word. The actual name of the country was Kemet, which means the black land. And that's because of the black soil that would get washed down by the Nile. So you would have this flooding of the Nile every year and it would deposit this rich black soil that they would grow their crops in. 
Well, when you're talking about, again, soil and minerals, if you have something there that is producing additional positive energy, that's going to make your crops grow even better. So one of the ideas is that the, uh, the pyramid was there to uplift the crops, uplift the uh, you know, people's psyche and their own internal energy and things like this. And the obelisks play a part into that too. They're made of, of granite, 55% quartz. So, you know, a, a lot of people liken them to these, um, you know, like electric needles being stuck in the ground. And that as the pyramid is producing this energy, the and emanating forth from it, that the obelisks are grabbing that energy and continuing to spread it out, almost like uh, repeaters, really. When we talk about, and go back to Christopher Dunn's uh, illustration here again, real quick. So what he's calling the uh, reaction chamber, and I've shown you guys these photos before, but it still blows my mind. Now, that's the queen's chamber. And there's that niche in the one wall. And it looks very reminiscent of the grand gallery. And the grand gallery is built like a resonating chamber. So again, you know, some sound technology involved here as well. But when we look back in, in the back wall of this. Now, mainstream academia and archaeologists try to say, well, we really don't know, but it seems like a great place for an idol or a statue or something like that. Sure it does. Except when you actually look at the evidence on the wall behind it where you see the black scoring uh, and then you see the vitrification of the stone back there. You can see the rivulets molten stone. Uh, just, just plain as day. Something very, very hot was there. Something was burning and melted the stone. So this is where I agree with Christopher Dunn that yes, the, the pyramid was certainly used for something that would, that would certainly be machine-like. Uh, it was generating something. What exactly that was is still up for debate. Okay. So now as we're talking about the, uh, the Earth's energy, that brings us into a conversation about the Earth's energy grid or ley lines. So what exactly is a ley line? Um, I have been kind of punny about this lately and saying that, um, you know, ley lines is really a layman's term for what's really going on. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to put down people who use the term ley lines. It's a legit, that's a legit term but it's not what people think it is. So when people say ley lines, they're referring to the uh, the energy in the earth's ground, but that's not exactly what the ley is. And so um, I actually have some quotes here from my Alaska Triangle book because the uh, the first chapter I get into uh, ley lines, stellaric currents, portals, um, the vortices, all of that. So I'm actually going to read from you from the Alaska Triangle, even though this section has to do with the UK. So go figure that. So ley lines became recognized in the early 20th century by Alfred Watkins in his 1925 book, The Old Straight Track. But it took about 40 years before research by John Mitchell, followed by the team of Hamish Miller and Paul Broadhurst, brought the concept to the forefront. Traversing the, er traversing the English countryside, these researchers rediscovered the alignment of ancient sites along geodetic lines that became known as the Michael and Mary ley lines due to the sheer number of temples, churches, and sanctuaries along this axis, dedicated to Michael the Archangel and St. Mary or her mother, St. Anne. Extending this line outside of England, it passes through Tiwanaku, the oldest temple site found in Bolivia, and later through the mountain of Wuzi, the holiest shrine of the Chinese island of Henan. Ley lines such as the Michael and Mary track, the Apollo-Athena line through Europe, and many others are recognized all over the world, connecting many historic sites of power. Finding a ley line in Alaska is actually a difficult task since it's a rather sparsely populated area of the world, and you don't find ancient temples and sites of power in the Great White North. We're really not interested in the lays, however. We're interested in what's actually underneath and how that affects the surrounding area. So, to break that all down, uh, when we're looking at something like the uh, Michael and Larry, Michael and Larry, Michael and Mary line uh, in England, that's what happens when my brain goes faster than my mouth. Um, 
the reason why it's a line or the, the reason why we call it a ley line is because uh, these gentlemen discovered that, hey, as we're walking along the countryside here, we've noticed that all of these different historic important sites, whether it was a stone circle or a temple or a church or a cathedral or whatever it was, they all lined up in this very succinct line. That's the lay, the lining up of all these different important sites. These, or you might call it a site of power or what have you. But there's a reason why they all line up like that. And that's because of the telluric currents, the earth energy grid running under the ground. When they were built, they were tapping into that. Now, something like a more modern church or cathedral, they're generally not thinking about that. But hundreds of years ago, what they were doing was they were building these locations on top of the Druids' holy sites for a couple of different reasons. You know, one, it's a holy site for a reason. You know, they know that there's some sort of religious power that's there, some sort of, um, you know, and, and I don't know how well early Christians really thought of the land as a power source, but they knew that there was something special about it. You know, they were more concerned with things above rather than within the ground, but they knew that there was some sort of reverence to the land. Also, since they were trying to, of course, proselytize and indoctrinate all the you know uh, locals into their religion, if you built on top of their religious site, well, one, it pushes their religious sites out of use, and also you might have some of them trying to sneak back onto the property to still you know, revere the land that had once been theirs. So you have that sort of thing going on. So, okay, I've used the term telluric current. So let's talk a little bit about what that actually is. So again, from the Alaska Triangle book. A common point of confusion in this area of study has come in interchanging the term ley line with earth energy lines. The telluric current, the actual magnetic energy of the earth, are fields of magnetic current that run within the ground. Ley lines are terrestrial and connect specific points upon the landscape. In other words, the ley is simply the line we draw between the physical locations of these sites of power, whether those locations are temples, sets of standing stones, churches, pyramids, etc. They line up so succinctly because the ancients knew to build these sites upon hotspot nodes of telluric current running through the earth. The telluric current being the actual natural electric current running beneath the Earth's surface. So all that is absolutely fascinating. And what makes it extremely fascinating, okay, so some of these line up, this is through England, great. Even more fascinating is, okay, this one here lines up through Europe, and this is the Apollo Athena, through Europe and into the Middle East. And when you extend these, you find that they're actually lining up with other ones across the world, which is even more fascinating. So what about, what is it about these energy lines, these telluric currents that makes them special? How are they getting this energy? Where is that coming from? Let me check your comments here real quick, see what you guys have here. Um, okay. Connie's asking, you know, did you feel a difference while you were there uplifted? Yeah, absolutely. Um, until I started getting dehydrated because in the middle of summer, I didn't drink enough water. <laughs> um, yeah, Egypt was, you know, it, a lot of it was just being awestruck really, uh, being inside the great pyramid on the, on the summer solstice, absolutely amazing. Um, and a lot of it was really just awestruck with how huge these things were and how could people have built this sort of thing. So Going back uh, this coming February, uh, I think I'll be able to soak it in a, a little bit more, a little bit better, because I won't be just like, oh, the whole time. <laughs> um, Sarah's asking, do you think the interaction of earth energy and telluric currents produce certain effects? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of what we've been talking about, that, yeah, whether it's um, uh, they can, you know, create, uh, you know, they could uh, heal you. Um, you could use it for, um, you know, creating a certain more positive vibration with, within you that maybe would create that healing um, to be able to enter into different uh, states of consciousness. Of course, we've talked about the 
possibility of stargates and portals. So all those, you know, are, are different effects that, that would produce. And then Jennifer's asking, are these currents measurable and how? Okay, so we are uh, definitely going to uh, to get into that here. So one of the things, this is also from the Alaska Triangle Book, and I need to get the, uh, the Rollwright Stone, which in, in getting all this together, I didn't grab that particular photo. So let me grab that here real quick. Uh, we are going to talk about some actual studies by the uh, U.S. Department of the Interior. So therefore, you know it's true, right? <laughs> um, okay, so I am in the wrong directory here. Let me go and get this because we're going to need that photo. Um, but yes, people have actually gone out there with uh, various instrumentation and have measured these sorts of things. So let me grab that. And then I'm also going to need this other. I'm sorry, sometimes sometimes I do that, right? Um, I mean to have it all together, and sometimes it doesn't all quite work out. All right, let's go ahead and start with um, Alaska. In 1965, the United States Department of the Interior, when they did their survey, it was only of 100,000 square miles. Alaska is over 600,000 square miles, but in 100,000 square miles, they found as many as five different areas of distinct magnetic character. In their interpretation of the magnetic data, the report stated, the magnetic profiles show numerous anomalies caused by variations in magnetization of the rocks, principally the mafic and ultramafic varieties, but also some granitic and metamorphic rocks. The magnetization is a combination of that induced by the present Earth's field and the remnant magnetization, the latter tending to be largest in the mafic volcanic rocks. In some cases, the direction of the remnant magnetization is reversed to give a negative anomaly. And the whole quote goes on for a while. But in other words, there are a significant number of different types of anomalies occurring in the region due to the geological structure of the Alaskan ground stone within it and the minerals that are within it. So these anomalies are also exacerbated by the Earth's magnetic influence, uh, its field, and the currents upon these types of rocks and the minerals within uh, the Alaska Triangle. So basically when we're talking, we get into this with triangle areas as well, when the magnetization from the Earth's core is rising up out of the ground, this is where we talk about know, the quote-unquote vortex energy rising up out of the ground. When it hits a variety of different metals, minerals, water, those sorts of things within the ground. It has a different interaction. And some of those can become very powerful with different, uh, with some of these different minerals and metals and, you know, how much of it is there. And when that, when magnets hit metal, different things happen and you have some areas that are stronger than others. So that's what's going on here uh, within the ground. Now, I mentioned the Rollwright stone. So we, we talked a bit about uh, stone circles here earlier. So Rollwright stones are in England. Uh, and this was a fascinating study done some years ago. So experiments conducted by John Burke and Kaj Helberg, as presented in their book, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty, showed that electrodes planted at the hinge monuments in Southern England revealed how their earthen ditches break the transmission of telluric ground current and conduct its electricity into the ditch. In effect, concentrating the energy and releasing it at the entrance to the site, sometimes at double the rate of the surrounding land. This has led to the realization that stone circles, even mounds like Silbury Hill, behave like concentrators of electromagnetic energy. So, and you can see here from uh, their illustration how uh, this energy has become like a, uh, a circular pattern, like a spiral within the uh, the circle itself. And the Rollwright stones are very, very small. They used to be uh, quite larger, but they're actually very small these days. So, you know, if they're going out there with electrodes now and detecting energy that's present there today, you know, imagine how it was, you know, a couple thousand years ago when this site was actually acted by by the Druids. Uh, it, it's fascinating how powerful uh, some of these things could could have really been. 
So um, some other questions here. Um, all right. And Connie's saying that she was actually there. Awesome. So, uh, and Jen, I hope that answered your question about uh, the, the, if the currents are measurable. So we, I did take a, a tri-field meter out there with uh, when we were there at Drombeg and, and uh, Grange. Those were, uh, you know, those readings were very small. I, I didn't really get a whole lot out there. I got more with the dowsing rods. I did take the chromatic tuner out there because I talked before about like the pyramid being tuned to uh, the key of F sharp, the coffer to, um, to the key of A. And actually the earth itself is supposed to be tuned to the key of F sharp. So what did we actually get off the stones? Um, just some rudimentary testing. Got the key of F. I want to go back and do a little bit more. Drombeg, we had a lot of people there. Um, so it was a little bit hard to, to really tell. So, all right. And yeah, Sarah, definitely wish they would have left an operator's manual. Seriously, seriously. And Tom, with all the hieroglyphs, wasn't there anything about how the pyramids were created or stored their energy? That's one of the big reasons, uh, one of the big mysteries. We don't know how the pyramids were built. They actually did not have building plans that they left behind for how the, uh, uh, the, the pyramids were built. Now, storing the energy, we see that symbolism in a lot of different ways. So uh, we are going to get kind of briefly into that here toward the end. But what I do want to uh, do real quick is, okay, so we've been talking about, you know, these, these wonderful things, the different ley lines. Now, okay, so these lines are going all over the world. Where are they? Surely somebody has, you know, an illustration of all the different ley lines that uh, stretch throughout the world. It's kind of interesting. You'll go to like a, you know, a haunted location and say, well, there's a, you know, a ley line that runs through here. Okay, how do, how do we know? Uh, the question I always like to throw people and it throws them off. Okay, if there's a ley line going through here, where does it connect to? You know, what are the you know, specific locations that it lines up with? Because we mentioned before, stone circles, churches, cathedrals, temples, you know, ancient sites of power like Karnak, pyramids. You know, what do these line up with uh, if, if you have a ley line going through here? A lot of people can't seem to answer that question. So, okay, so there's got to be some maps out there, different ley lines, right? There are, actually. You can search around for those. And many of them seem to be very different, which makes this area of research uh, kind of frustrating. So uh, so here's one. And uh, what's interesting about this particular one, okay, so you've got um, uh, Giza there right in, in the middle. Uh, you have all these uh, you know, connections here. To Giza, and then you look at what should be some other hot spots like the Bermuda Triangle, and um, it's it's not there. <laughs> it's not the Azores are are marked, and somewhere in the American Southwest, um, but yeah, not the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, that's kind of interesting. But then you bring up this one. Oh, okay, yeah. Here's here's the Bermuda Triangle. This one shows that there's a lot of connections there. Another one in the American Southwest somewhere. Um, you know, so, okay, that one's a little bit different. Then you have this one that, this one looks like a bunch of, bunch of different sine waves, also marking Giza, no Bermuda Triangle. Uh, it has actually some question marks on here. So that one's different. And then, okay, here's one that's a, as a globe. And um, you got lines all over the place on this one. It's almost very hard to see. So, I kind of take the the maps that you can find online with with a grain of salt. One of these days, if I find the time that I, I don't have, um, one of these days I may just sit down and try to put a little something together, taking these different sites that are supposed to be powerful like that, and boom, 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 boom. Uh, it, it's, it would be a very tedious task, but uh, maybe one day. There's also another map that's out there, the map of the vile vortices. And uh, so this was a, a term that was coined uh, in the 60s by Ivan T. Sanderson. And you can see this one here is a little bit different. So this is Ivan T. Sanderson. He was a British biologist and writer, later became a U.S. citizen. Uh, while he wrote several books on animals and nature, he actually had a profound interest in the paranormal and supernatural. 
He was an early follower of Charles Fort, which is where we get the term Fortian from. And he wrote about several of these topics in the mid-20th mid century. He was also the organizer for the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained. So uh, he had in the early 1970s a, uh, a article published it was called The Twelve Devil's Graveyards Around the World, in which he talks about these, what he called, vile vortices that are situated in the world's tropical atmospheres. Five of them fall within the Tropic of Cancer, the other five inside the Tropic of Capricorn. The other two vile vortices would be uh, the North Pole and the South Pole. And you can see one of them is Bermuda Triangle, another one, another triangle over there, the Devil's Triangle over by Japan. And the whole structure, if you get into sacred geometry, which we're not tonight, would create a 20-sided polygon or an icosagon, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> uh, but this is where we start getting into more of the triangle action uh, around the world. Uh, but again, this is only between the tropics of uh, Cancer and Capricorn. It, it's kind of limited. Uh, it does not include the Alaska Triangle or Lake Michigan or Bridgewater or Nevada. Uh, but what's interesting is Sanderson uh, had noticed a pattern which he could match up with, with geometry. So we're getting a little bit limited on time here. Uh, Tom was asking about Egyptian hieroglyphs. So at Abbott as well, really all around Egypt, you see the iconography of the, of the Jed pillar. We're going to be talking about um, Abydos specifically. Uh, this is a really, really interesting uh, symbol of ancient Egypt. And what is interesting, okay, the idea here is the Jed pillar would be harnessing vibration. Of course, you can go back to the pyramids here, be harnessing the vibration generated by these pyramids if, if that's what it's doing. Uh, it's also considered the backbone of Egypt. And what's interesting is we don't actually find any of these Jed pillars today. They've uh, they've kind of disappeared, which we've also seen in other things like um, I've talked about this before. The the different rods that you see all of in in all of this iconography, you see these guys holding the rods, or you see statues that are supposed to be holding rods, and the rods are missing. But we can't find any Jed pillars either. They also seem to be gone. We see like little replicas of them, but we don't actually find the 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 original Jed pillars. They're all gone. Don't know what happened to them. So I do have a clip that I'm going to play. Uh, this is from the Abydos Stargates, but then um, Mohammed and Johnny Enoch have a little back and forth about the, the Jed pillars. And, and then we'll have a follow-up to that here. So yesterday, we have seen the world Stargate in Karnak Temple. Now we will see the world Stargate in Abydos Temple. Sab, and Sab means a star and the simple gate. And in the same way, star gate, star gate, star gate, star gate. So if this was a, just a title, why we don't see it everywhere next to the name of the king? Why in certain places? Because this is the star gate, not the other location. So yeah, you've got the stargates here, and what they're telling you the function of this, and like you're explaining to people with Osiris, and here's a guy that's this depiction of ascension, and what's the, the importance of that. But look over here too, you see that raising of the Dejet pillar. The story says Uzir was dead. When you uh, think about dead person, you think about what kind of uh, shape. A dead person is sleeping on the ground, so his backbone and the spine will be flat above the ground, right? So Uzir is going to rise from the dead land, and this is the annual celebration of the priest, of course, and the king will be part of it, to put the, the pillar upright, and that is, will be in July to be the, something like the Egyptian Christmas. They're going to say, announce that Uzir is alive. So this is the midway of erecting the pillar or the backbone of Uzir. What is the degree? I didn't measure this in a perfect way, but I think it will be 23 degrees. 23 degrees is what it the axis of our planet. Yes, Earth. Uh, angle, 
because Earth is not, the, the North Pole and the South Pole are not vertical. It is 23, I think, 0.5 degrees. So it is the same degree here. And then when we reach this uh, perfect uh, angle, then we will have North and South will be perfectly aligned to uh, or will be vertical angle and this will be a beginning of a new cycle of life, a beginning of new civilization, beginning of new energies and powers. So when this will be upright... All right, there's about a minute more in the clip, but uh, we're getting down toward the end of our class here. So, um, but I've played that before in some of our previous classes. And of course, you can find that within the, uh, within the Connected Universe portal. If you go into all of the Egypt material, you can find that there in Abydos. I love Abydos. So one of the speculations here is, as this was harnessing energy, vibration, these sorts of things. Uh, and of course, you're there in Abydos, which has a number of these spots labeled as stargates. And we do see stargates all over uh, Egypt. Or at least, you know, the label of stargates in some places like Hatshepsut's temple that's configured so perfectly as a stargate. It's also labeled as that as well. Um, that the uh, the jet pillars were tuned to a certain frequency that helped you access the stargate at these different locations. So one of those, again, kind of being specu speculative here because we have yet to actually find a jet pillar. And some, if you look at it, um, some also say that um, it's it's built like a Tesla coil. We'll come back to that again here real quick because um, I do want to talk uh, very quickly here about the uh, pyramid tests. Because the pyramid tests here, this is in Saqqara. It's amazing. Uh, they say that humans can be transfigured into a higher being, a being of light and be projected through the portal to other regions of space-time. Conversely, other beings of space-time could come through into our world. So we're talking about that idea of portal and stargate here. And then you have uh, you have your pyramid there. And we, when we looked at Hatshepsut's temple before, you had the smaller pyramid off to the side. You had the uh, staircase with the iconography of the energy going up. And then way back in the Holy of Holies, you had the stargate symbolism. So this would have been where they would have been coming through. And then the question becomes, uh, you know, where the jet pillars, if this is a built like a Tesla coil, I mean, is this where, you know, Tesla got the inspiration? Was he channeling something from the ancients? I mean, it may have just popped in his head and didn't know anything about this, but, you know, we're seeing kind of that, um, that return to ancient technology here in what he constructed going all the way back to what we talked about at the very, very beginning of this class, um, you know, to be able to harness that energy to, transmit and receive back in ancient time what would they have been using that for again we could speculate you know was it you know uplifting the energy of the people and the land you know were they were they healing were they entering altered states of consciousness was it this traveling back and forth through a portal or a stargate into something or like the pyramid tasks were telling us you know becoming a light being and being projected somewhere and likewise other things projecting in so uh, one of those I would love to go back in time and witness what all these different things were, were actually used for. So let me go ahead and take a look at your final comments and questions here. Um, and yeah, like Connie, maybe Tesla was an Egyptian in a past life and he was uh, pulling from that. Yeah, uh, possibly. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Tesla did believe in a, a lot of these sorts of things. So he... Um, uh, he believed in astral projection and believed that he had actually astral projected before when he was a, a younger man. So he was open to a lot of those different ideas like that. So, all right, everybody, I uh, really appreciate you uh, participating in the class this evening. I really appreciate all your questions and comments down there. For those that are listening to the uh, podcast version of this later, please join us every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m., Eastern time here, connecteduniverseportal.com. And, you know, with all this, uh, you know, Egypt footage that we throw through in here as well, of course, join us for the Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour in February. You can go to connecteduniverseportal.com or mikerickstucker.com to get the links to that tour there and get some more information about it.
All right, everybody. Till next time, if time really exists.